there. I'm Dr. Gabe Lowe, and welcome to the Hard Questions, No Answers podcast. This is a show that is less interested in answering life's difficult questions and more interested in the process of wrestling with them. This podcast is a forum to celebrate the messiness that makes us human. It is a place to invite the unanswerable questions because often it is precisely these types of questions that push us to dig deeper, to think harder, and to refine our approach to life. So, if you get to the end of the episode and you still have lots of questions, then I've done my job. I invite you on the pursuit of no answers. My guest today is Dr. Kristen Fort, who is the Director of Integrative Dialogue for Wheaton College's School of Psychology, Counseling, and Family Therapy, and Co-Director of the Multicultural Peace and Justice Collaborative Research Lab. She is Assistant Professor of Psychology at Wheaton College and has written peer-reviewed publications in the areas of clinical psychology, Christian theology, and racial and ethnic identity. Currently, she is contributing a regular column for the Journal of Psychology and Christianity entitled Integrating Justice in Teaching, Scholarship, and Practice. Please enjoy my conversation with Dr. Kristen Fort. Dr. Kristen Fort, thank you so much for joining me. It's a pleasure. We've crossed paths a a few times uh, Mm -hmm. through Wheaton College, and you you were one of the people that I talked with before landing on my uh, graduate school of choice. Uh, You were at Fuller Mm -hmm. uh, Theological Seminary doing your doctoral work, and now you're back at Wheaton. And today we're going to be talking a lot about emotions from both a psychological and a theological perspective. And, you know, I think a lot of people are used to hearing about emotions and sort of what they are and how they contribute to our lives from a psychological perspective. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I'm curious for you being very interested in the theological aspects as well. Mm -hmm. um, What interests you about emotions from a theological perspective? Yeah, it's a great question. Well, thank you for having me. I'm glad to be here with you and our audience, wherever they are as they tune in. Um, I guess I'll answer your question by taking a step back and thinking a little bit about what got my what got my interest, what piqued my interest in the integration of psychology and theology. Let mm-hmm. us start with a shared space that you've referenced of Wheaton College when I was an undergraduate student. I became, became a psych major like halfway through college, so at the end of sophomore year, and discovered I really enjoyed what I was learning in some of my classes. And what I found most compelling was taking a class that many people enjoy, whether they're psych majors or not, which was abnormal psychology, the class mm-hmm. where you learn about psychopathology, both of those terms I actually despise, psychopathology <laughs> and abnormal psychology, because yeah, they tend to be incredibly, stigma. yes, they're stigmatized pathological lenses to look at the person. Um, and I just prefer to have a more holistic perspective. So regardless, though, in that class of abnormal psychology, I remember my professor at Wheaton asking us to take a look at um, a passage, I think in Mark chapter five, looking at a man possessed by a demon. And after looking at the story, He said, doesn't this look a lot like some of the diagnostic criteria we've been talking about for a diagnosis? And I was like, oh, whoa, what? Yes, it does. There seem to be some striking parallels in symptomology. And it piqued my interest in asking questions of the biblical texts that overlap with psychological themes that all Mm -hmm. psychology majors are, are generally interested in to some degree. So with that, like wetting my appetite to say, I can ask psychological questions of the text of scripture. And of course, there are theological implications for psychology, for people of faith or just spiritual people in general, religious mm-hmm. people in general, um, that kind of got me started in thinking about these questions. So mm-hmm. kind of as a setup, an answer to what you're asking about my interest in, in emotion from a theological perspective, I kind of started by asking just questions about um, anything psychological in terms of emotions, thoughts, behaviors, um, relationships of the text of scripture. Mm-hmm. Fast forward then from there at Wheaton to my time at Fuller Seminary. And what I loved about my time at Fuller um, especially was the fact that I was taking classes in psychology and theology almost every quarter. So I never had one quarter where I was just taking classes in one discipline, which Mm -hmm. means I was thinking about things from both perspectives often. And I remember taking systematic theology two class and, um, or systematic theology one actually talking about in general in those kinds of classes, like who is God? What is God? What is the human person in light of God? Fancy terms like theological anthropology, which is Mm -hmm. the study of the person in light of God or in light of what religious tradition has to say. And in those classes, I learned about some teachings about God's own experience of emotion or Mm. the lack thereof. 
and some controversies that exist surrounding whether or not God has emotions and God's own self. Huh, interesting. And that was really interesting to me, right? Yeah. As someone studying psychology at the time and like, what do you mean? Like, does God have emotions? Scripture seems to give lots of examples of emotional themes mm-hmm, for God mm-hmm. in scripture, especially in the Old Testament. But there's also these doctrines connected to fancy terms like theopassionism, this question about whether or not God really can have emotions. Mm-hmm. There's actually a lot of debate that's resurfaced in the church over the last 100 years following World War II in particular. So anyways, as I learned some of this history and learned that theologians actually are really curious about emotions too, the main concept that was a bridge builder for me as an integrationist between psychology and theology was this question of what does it mean to be made in the image of God? Hmm. What does it mean for us to be the Imago Dei? It's a question that many evangelical Christians will toss around, think about those kinds of things. Yeah. But I I was especially curious about that in light of not just human beings as rational beings or creative beings or other ways that theologians have talked about, we image God by having these characteristics. But I was especially curious as a clinician about what about this affective emotional component of who we are? Do we image God by bearing emotions as well? And is there a healthy way to understand emotions, even quote unquote, negative emotions like anger, sure. or sadness yeah. and have appropriate spaces for that. So that was my, that was my lead in to these topics. Yeah. And the word that comes to mind is creativity, that there is just a lot of different ways to look at things. And I think especially um, the the way that you're describing it, I think, is almost like a new language, a a new Mm. sort of vocabulary for looking Mm. at scripture, for looking at um, psychology. And when you bring those languages together, Mm -hmm. um, I think there's sort of a translation going on of translating psychology words to theological words and vice versa. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think uh, something that can be difficult is, I think sometimes it can feel anachronistic Mm -hmm. to sort of say that, hey, psychology evolved, you know, just over very recently, you know, over the last several decades. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, we're sort of looking at scriptural text which was Mm -hmm. is thousands of years old Mm -hmm. um is it anachronistic to apply modern day terms to the ancient Mm. texts and the ancient experience so Mm -hmm. how do you reconcile that discrepancy between using modern language and modern sensibilities modern Mm -hmm. research and discovery with the biblical texts um, yeah. and with sort of an ancient understanding? It's an excellent question. I think anachronism is a, a question mark or a theme that's often in the back of my mind in my research and in my teaching as a professor. Is what does it mean to do exactly what you're saying? To pay attention to the time period, uh, historical time period, and the context that shaped the text that we're reading or that shapes our lives now. And then, yes, ask some translation questions as we try and make sense of these things. For me, as a scholar, one of the things that's really important to me is to first ask the question about what was the text saying to its initial audience? Mm-hmm. Who were the first people to read this text and what did they what did they know? How did they conceive of the world? How did they conceive of themselves? And then when they use language, um, in what ways is there overlap when they talk about kind of like look at a scriptural text, for instance, in the Psalms where emotions come up a lot, some totally. of them anger or despair or hopelessness or sadness or joy or gratitude. Were those emotions similar to what we're talking about? Generally speaking, I think there's a lot of overlap. Like we're talking about human experiences, but do the words mean the exact same thing? That's a really good question for our um, translating scholars. And then also, you know, for us as we try and do good exegesis of the text. I think what I acknowledge when studying emotions specifically in theology is that we've used different words for different affective or emotional themes over time. And so even though psychology is a newer discipline around in the last hundred and 30, 140 years since Freud first came up with this idea of the talking cure, right? In the late 1800s. Yeah. Um, as this discipline has evolved, it's also important to acknowledge we didn't like come out of a vacuum. Like mm-hmm. psychology came into the scene following philosophy's questions about what does it mean to be a person? Theology yeah. has been asking these questions for a long time. So these aren't new questions. They're just asked from a different disciplinary perspective. And now there are new methodologies with different disciplinary lenses that allow us to approach how we answer those questions now. 
And so it's if I think about conversation, yeah, exactly. And it's a cross disciplinary conversation. And mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. even though there are younger disciplines on the scene, like psychology, um, it's significant to me to ask how were philosophers and theologians talking about these terms earlier? Did they mean the same thing? And so, so then to your question about anachronisms, I, I do think that affect and emotion has always been a component of human experience. So it's mm-hmm. not an inappropriate question to ask, are there emotional themes of any ancient text? Mm-hmm. Yeah. What seems more appropriate to me is to ask, how did they conceive of those emotional experiences? Did they mm-hmm. highlight them? Did they have the same words or vocabulary for them that we do? Yeah, the um, culture. Think, that's right. That's right. How did the culture perceive those things? So some of my work focuses quite a bit on the early church and then how Stoic philosophy, kind of even before the early church came into the scene and then afterwards, how they've understood emotions and how that shaped Paul and his mm-hmm. understandings of emotions and then how the church has adopted and adapted that perspective. Yeah. And so this does raise questions then about, I don't know many normal people in the 21st century who know much about Stoic you know, philosophy of emotion, <laughs> but if they do, they have some stereotypes, you know, you distance yourself from emotions, things don't mm-hmm. mean even keeled, mm-hmm. those kinds of things those perceptions of emotions from a long time ago have an impact on what we think is a healthy way of being now. Yeah. Um, and so I, I try and ask questions first, how did ancient Stoic philosophers understand things? How might Paul have interpreted some of those things mm-hmm. if he was mm-hmm. influenced by some of those ideas? And then what does that mean for us now? So trying to pay attention to then and now, and I, I do think there's overlap, even though we have to be careful. Yeah. I mean, when you bring up Stoic philosophy, I think that throughout history, you can see some of those patterns repeating, even though it was so long ago, I think that there can still be modern hesitancy or suspicion of emotions. Mm -hmm. And so I'm curious, sort of, as a person who sort of looks back at some of those trends, and as somebody who's a practitioner now, who maybe comes up against some of that skepticism, some of that hesitancy, um, what do you see as perhaps similar or different between what that stoicism was sort of, I guess, protecting against or resistant to about emotions? Yeah. And why do you think it can be hard to sort of embrace emotions? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's a good question. So I really do think there's a trend from like thousands of years ago, hundreds of years ago to now to why we are often hesitant or resistant to, to like emotional experiences. And I think oftentimes emotions are correlated with the feeling of being out of control. Mm-hmm. And we know as psychologists that we balk against feeling <laughs> out of control in life, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Like, well, personally, we might balk you and I, but also as humans, we tend to really shy away from feeling like the world is spinning out of orbit. And I think, um, especially if we think historically about like Greco-Roman and like other Western ancient perspectives, that emotions were tied to being like whimsical, to like Mm -hmm. being like at the whim of whatever your passion is prompting you to do. If we think about like Greek mythology for a moment, we think about the Greek gods, the whole Greek pantheon is like completely subject to whatever they're feeling at the moment. They make some rash, often foolish decisions, even as deities, which is like, wow, if the gods can be swayed by their emotions, you know, we really should stay away from those things. Yeah, that they're impulsive. Exactly. Exactly. They're ruled by those impulses. And those impulses are not just like physiological things, but they're emotional things. And our, of course, our emotions are tied to our physiology. And we know that even more now as neuroscience has entered the scene. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think because we balk against feeling out of control, because emotions are correlated with feeling out of control. And we mm-hmm. tend to want to push aside anything that makes us lean in that direction. Mm-hmm. And it's easy to engage in what we talk about as psychologists, this black and white thinking. It's all or nothing thinking. Just emotions either are all bad or negative emotions are all bad. Mm-hmm. I want to pause and qualify that term by saying negative. I don't mean like in the evaluative sense of like good or bad, but negative being on the spectrum of things that prompt um, difficult feelings of like, it doesn't feel good usually mm-hmm. to feel sad or angry yeah. or jealous, right? If we think about it as a continuum on the other side, we have this joy or hope or gratitude or other types of things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like comfortable or uncomfortable feelings. Yeah, exactly, exactly. It's comfortable or uncomfortable feelings. And so because we're shying away from those uncomfortable feelings, it's easier to just say negative emotions are bad. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Feeling angry is bad. Yeah. And if we take a step further and think about religious communities, especially Christian communities. I know more about them. I think many religious traditions kind of outside of Christianity as well around the globe will often say that if you're going to be given to your passions, you're out of control. And Mm -hmm. so we need to push that aside in order to be more whole, more healthy, more mature. 
more spiritual, more self-actualized, take whatever term you want, yeah. a better evolved version of ourselves mm-hmm. is something that distances or sometimes even suppresses those affective impulses that we have. Mm-hmm. As a psychologist, just practically, I've seen many of the negative consequences of suppressing those emotions because they're not dealt with appropriately or fully. Mm-hmm. And also many of the the beautiful moments of life come in contrast with those negative emotions, like leaning into grief so that when hope is found again, hope has a new level and layer of depth and meaning. And our gratitude for it is different because we leaned into that grief. So Hmm. I think there's beauty that comes from acknowledging that pain, but that requires courage. Yeah. Uh, I'm with you there. And I think that sometimes uh, rationality and emotionality are sort of put at odds to one Mm -hmm. another Mm-hmm. And seeing, you know, one side is valued higher than the other. And mm-hmm. I think just looking back at the last several hundred years, the scientific revolution, it was a lot of uh, emphasis mm-hmm. on rationality yes, and empiricism, empiricism, being able mm-hmm. to measure things and to think logically. Mm-hmm. And sort of the reaction to that in more recent terms has been sort of a postmodern sensibility of relativism of Mm. everybody being able to speak and own their own truth and Mm. to be able to respect differences Mm -hmm. and obviously there there can be pros and cons to both Mm -hmm. Um, but I think that uh, currently one of the criticisms of uh, emotions or emotionality is this idea of relativism that every, anybody mm-hmm. can basically just mm-hmm. choose whatever they are feeling or thinking mm-hmm. and everybody else just has to deal with it. Mm-hmm. And so I, I'm curious how you sort of balance that because obviously anything can be taken to an extreme, yeah. um, but, yes. <laughs> and, and we see it uh, plenty, plenty of times. <laughs> uh, just sometimes it seems like uh, it just keeps getting worse and worse or it it just keeps getting more and more. But uh, I think really things go in cycles and Mm -hmm. and things come back again. So with with where we're at currently and and sort of a postmodern and maybe even moving into a post-postmodern, whatever Uh that is, that's right, that's right. um, You know, how do you balance this criticism of what is the boundary line between where we can take ownership of our emotions mm-hmm. and when um, that uh, sort of responsibility or, or accountability needs to be put back onto that person? Yeah, it's a good question. So I'm going to give a little bit of context and then maybe come back and ask you to ask the question one more time just to make sure I'm clear about kind of sure, where we're going to yeah. go with it. I think in general, we think about like relativity and that is something that many people, again, especially um, more traditional religious people often will have this deep concern about this relativistic understanding of things, right? Mm -hmm. And there is, especially in Christian tradition, but in many spaces too, this deep appreciation for absolute truth. Mm, And I will show my cards and say, I do believe that absolute truth exists. That happens to be my own bias and and faith statement or claim. Mm -hmm. But something I think about a lot is that Though I do believe absolute truth exists, and I believe objectivity is possible in like theory, I also believe that whatever is absolutely true or objectively true in life, I can only perceive it from my subjective lens. Mm, Yeah. I can't actually perceive objective reality objectively. There's a human limitation. There is. And that's just part of it, I think, is by design. Again, if we use some Christianese for a second. <laughs> and part of it can be like this fallen or broken or problematic um, kind of set of biases that we can unlearn, that we can kind of <laughs> teach ourselves anew to be more healthy. Um, but if if it is true that truth exists or absolute objective perceptions of reality exist in theory, but can't be accessed fully on my own, <laughs> then I have to own that I bring a perspective, I bring a lens, because I bring a bias to every every situation I'm in. And so yeah. if that's true, then if there's two sides to every story or five sides to every story, that, <laughs> that idea that sounds relativistic, I think is an acknowledgement of truth, that we are all bringing a perspective to whatever the situation was. And so um, I do need to own that I see things from this lens and, and I feel things deeply from my perspective, but because you're a different human, you might perceive things differently, feel things differently, have a different response, even to the same situation or interaction. Mm -hmm. Um, That's kind of a a setup for how I think about what you're asking, but I don't know if I'm going to ask a question again or. Yeah, I I think that's helpful. You know, um, 
what, what that sparks for me is sort of the parable or the fable of the blind men and the elephants. A hundred percent. That's right. That's exactly yeah, where right. You've got these different people who might be touching an elephant and because they're blind, they are getting different experiences of it. Yes. That one person has a trunk, one person has a leg, one person has a tail. Yes. And even though they're all right in their interpretation of, oh, this feels like a snake, or this feels mm-hmm. like a paintbrush, or this feels like a tree trunk. Mm-hmm. Um, they're only getting just a, a part of the That's overall right. whole picture. That's right. That's right. And I think I think it's a freeing thing to realize that whatever the big questions, existential questions we have about life, or about deity, or God, or about existence, that we can only grasp, grasp so much of it. Mm-hmm. And it's humbling and sometimes fear-inducing to acknowledge we only have our, our limited perspective yeah. because we'd like to have a full grasp of the truth, whatever it is, assuming it exists. And we can argue about that too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but if truth does yeah. exist, if there is an objective reality that we're trying to engage with, then it's humbling to say, I only see this part of it. Mm-hmm. It's also freeing and to me exciting to say that by being in community, by having diverse people around me from different backgrounds and perspectives, I have a better chance of understanding more holistically what this truth is, what this reality is. And that makes me really excited as someone who's curious by nature. Um, I think humans are in general. Yeah. I, I try to cultivate that curiosity for myself and my students and clients. It's really exciting to say, well, if I can get past the initial freakout session. I'm limited. I can't see everything perfectly. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Then I can lean into understanding things at least more fully, even if not Mm -hmm. perfectly. I think a very interesting application of this question and this wrestling is something that you brought up before, which I thought was fascinating of God's experience or lack thereof of mm-hmm. emotions, mm-hmm. Um, you know, because we get sort of um, different pictures of it throughout mm-hmm. scripture and throughout theological thought in traditional history of, of mm-hmm. the church, mm-hmm. that one of the doctrines that you alluded to is sort of this impassionate God mm-hmm. of, mm-hmm. Um, I forget the exact term, but yeah, the immutable or yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, immutability and impassibility are connected. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so I'm curious how you wrestle with that paradox that on the one hand, you know, I think the concern that sparks some of the impassivity is that if God is changeable, then mm-hmm. he is capricious, mm-hmm. that he is um, at the will or control mm-hmm. of humans mm-hmm. um, and, and to sort of not put God under humans. Mm-hmm. Um, and at the same time, scripture uses some of this language that evokes yep. emotions yep. and God is depicted as angry or uh, burning against mm-hmm. certain individuals mm-hmm. or, um, and, and then if we extend that into the person of Christ that Jesus yep. wept, yep. um, so yeah, how do you reconcile that? How, I mean, that's a huge question, uh, it um, is. <laughs> but you know, where does your mind go with that? Yeah. Well, I just lectured about each of the things you just talked about four separate mm-hmm. lectures over the last two weeks about each of those things. Looking we're at Jesus, condense we, it into... we are in like two minutes <laughs> thinking about John chapter 11, thinking about Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. If we start there for a sec, what does it mean to see that Jesus weeps with Martha and Mary when their brother dies? Mm-hmm. He doesn't weep as if he doesn't know what happened or why it happened or what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. Even for people who have like, there's lots of intellectual conversations about does how much does God foreknow? What are the limits of God's foreknowledge? Are there any, yeah. many, many Christians throughout history that there are no limits? God knows everything and is omniscient in every way. Mm-hmm. And there are some Christians who will say that God has actually limited God's own knowledge to give us free will, to partner with us more yeah. fully. And there's lots of debate about that. <laughs> I love that debate. It's a really good one. Yeah. Um, but regardless in that story, for instance, of Jesus, Martha and Mary separately come to Jesus and actually say to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Mm-hmm. And they hold Jesus accountable for saying, we know who you are. You're yeah. a friend and you come and heal. And here you are. You've chosen to stay somewhere else just a few miles away for days until he dies. What's up? Mm-hmm. It's significant to me that Jesus hears that. You could say accusation, that acknowledgement, but as opposed to just rebuking them or saying that's not true. He holds it. Yeah. And then as they start grieving, he enters into that grief with them mm-hmm. fully. 
Mm-hmm. And we could ask the question of Jesus, like just crying compassionately. Is he just crying because, you know, he's empathic. So because they're crying, he's crying. Or is there something genuinely about losing his friend, Lazarus? Mm-hmm. He doesn't call everyone his friend in the text, but these happen to be his friends. Mm-hmm. Does that matter to him? Does that impact him? Yeah, that he's also, moved. Exactly. And he is quite literally moved in the text. One of the questions theologians have asked and Old Testament scholars and New Testament scholars in this case have asked is, is Jesus moved only in his personhood as a son of man yeah. to human? Or is he also moved as a second member of the Trinity, as the son of God? Mm-hmm. And what do we do with these Christological challenges <laughs> that we have of like, what, what does it mean for Jesus to be one and the same? Like this yeah. one person, like, you know, like how do, how do we make sense of this? And there's lots mm-hmm. of conversation theologically yeah, about what are the repercussions of that. A hundred percent. And that's where my work comes in. The repercussions of, of what kind of God do we serve? What kind mm-hmm. of God do we image? Is it true that we're more like God if we are also impassive? Mm-hmm. Is it true? Are we more holy? Are we the best, more mature version of ourselves if we shy away? And the other question also is, is what we see of God in the text of scripture in Old or New Testament simply a depiction or representation, but not, not fully an actual accurate representation? Mm-hmm. Well, some theologians will use the question of, of, is God condescending to use language that we understand? And I think yes, to some degree. Mm-hmm. Yes, of course, God's choosing words that we understand, images that make sense to us. Mm-hmm. But I am of the opinion, along with many other theologians, that God is using language that is also an accurate representation of God's own self. Mm-hmm. But accurate doesn't mean complete. Mm-hmm. Doesn't mean by seeing this one image, we now see the full elephant. We go back to our metaphor sure. earlier, yeah. right? But it is accurate. Mm-hmm. So then if we go to the question of, of what do we do with Jesus experiencing these things or flashback to one other passage in the Old Testament, is God interacting with Moses over the children of Israel, creating a golden calf. Mm-hmm. I really love this passage because actually God and Moses go back and forth and God looks like God's throwing a temper tantrum. Like God, is, <laughs> God looks super pissed. Yeah. And just as like, by the end, God actually says to Moses, these are your people. Mm-hmm. I'm going to destroy your people. And Moses comes back in the next verse and says, actually, these are your people. <laughs> You're the one who brought them out of Egypt. And because yeah. you have a reputation, you need to figure something out. And of course, he's more respectful than that. But mm-hmm. it's interesting watching God and Moses go back and forth and God expresses anger and frustration. And again, we ask the question, is God just pretending to be angry? Mm-hmm. Is it just something that looks like anger, but it's not? Mm-hmm. Or is this some genuine, accurate representation of God's experience of anger, even if we think there's some qualitative difference between God's anger and ours? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that raises big questions for me, yeah. again, about if, if God can be actually angry, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I can actually also be angry without feeling guilty or bad about it. The question is, what does it mean to have this righteous anger? Mm-hmm. What is jealousy? Mm-hmm. As God claims God is a jealous God, what is appropriate jealousy? Yeah, well, there are appropriate yeah. definitions of these things. And so how do we interpret the text of scripture, acknowledging that God and, and humans are qualitatively different, mm-hmm. but also, but also there are some ways that God has called us to image God. And so I'll end this idea by saying last class for my integration class, integration of psychology and theology that I taught on Tuesday, we were talking about these divine attributes, these characteristics, or we could if we're using human terms, personality traits of God. We talk about what does it mean to have these set of traits that are true only of God. They're called incommunicable attributes, mm-hmm. attributes that God cannot communicate to us or pass on to us. And in a world where we're thinking about communicable diseases and incommunicable diseases, it's interesting <laughs> to think about that in the age yeah. of the pandemic. These are attributes that God only, only God has. God is omniscient and we don't mm-hmm. as humans claim to know all things. But there are some characteristics that we believe we also are intended to have as God has. We don't have them in the same way. But God says, I am holy and calls us to be holy. I am just and calls us to be just. I am love and calls us to be loving. These are what mm-hmm. we call communicable divine attributes. So what does it mean then for us to look at these, these attributes, some of them that are affective or emotional attributes and ask, oh, is there a way that we're meant to image God in these ways too? For those from a Christian tradition who believe we're supposed to image God or image God more fully. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love the picture of, God and Moses arguing, oh it, it kind of evokes this picture of like two parents fighting over the kids. Of, you, <laughs> yes. <laughs> you know, can you believe what your kid did? And exactly. Like, <laughs> you know, it's your kid. Yeah. Um, and I think that brings up uh, this notion that em- emotions are contextualized within relationships, yeah. um, that yep. they are 
ways in which communication happens. And as you are referencing that there is a degree to which God relates to humans in a different way that we relate to other humans, our, our yeah. peers. But I, I think it's the, the fact still remains that emotions play a part in both the divine human and the human to human relationships. Mm -hmm. So can you speak a little bit to how you conceptualize the role that emotions play within relationships that mm. uh, how, how would you describe, you know, what is it that um, what is the function that emotions mm -hmm. bring to communication into relationships? Yeah. yeah, it's a great question. I think emotions serve in many ways as a binding agent. Mm -hmm. I am someone who is gluten intolerant and I think a lot about <laughs> binding agents sure. <laughs> things that work well in our body's process and mm -hmm. things that are not processed well in this case, gluten yeah. for me. But as I got to understand gluten better, I realized things taste better. Their texture is better with gluten because it's a type of binding agent that allows these ingredients to come together in this magical way. So it makes fluffy bread so delicious. And the dense gluten-free bread just isn't quite the same. It's still trying to perfect mm -hmm. alternatives to it. Even though it I, might use some of the same ingredients. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Same ingredients. They just don't come together the same. Like, mm -hmm. There needs to be something that binds them. And it, there is something about the interaction or the synthesis of these various ingredients or uh, in, you know, food or these various factors that are impacting or um, helping us experience a relationship that are important. Mm. I think emotions are an essential component, like essential, like you, I don't think you have human relationships without affective experiences. And I think, again, if we're going to use Christianese for a sec, I think that's by design. I don't mm. think that's an accident if we're thinking about like the fall and post-fall, pre-fall, like did emotions exist before? I think they did. I think God created us to have these affective experiences. Mm -hmm. And so I think if we think about the binding agent as part of the role or function of emotions, I also think there's like an intellectual component. We think about knowing someone. When, you, when you're in relationship, your relationship is, is um, kind of ensconced in this idea of how well do you know the person that you're in a relationship with? There's an acquaintance, I kind of know them, right? A friend, I know yeah. them. A spouse, I know them well, yeah. right? There's, There's levels degrees. to it. Mm -hmm. That's exactly right. Different degrees or levels of knowledge. And I think what emotions provide is the distinction between what I like to think of is this cognitive or intellectual knowledge of something. I studied it. That's how I mm -hmm. felt about like, um, clinical psych when I was a first year doctoral student, I hadn't seen one client in real life. So all my knowledge was intellectual mm -hmm. and academic. Yeah. But once I saw my first client as a second year doctoral student in real time, I began to actually develop a relationship, build rapport with someone over time, over multiple sessions, my knowledge moved from being academic or intellectual to experiential. Mm, it's yeah. knowledge that only comes by, by being bound together. And there's affect that's binding us together in real time. Mm -hmm. I think if we think about attachment theory for a moment, one of my favorite theories to like kind of just reference, one of the things attachment theorists talk about and then infant researchers, infant parent researchers who also like overlap some with attachment research, they talk about the fact that when a child is bonding with a parent, let's just use the mother for an example, part of what's going on is not only is the mother expressing her own emotions to the child, both purposefully, intentionally, also unintentionally, parents just kind of whatever vibes they're giving off, the, the kid picks up on those things. It's All also that nonverbal language. Yes, exactly, exactly. It's also true that the child is also impacting the mom with the mm -hmm. child's experience of affect too. And that's why if the baby's crying, if the mom is attuned and accessible and responsive as secure attachment figures are, the mom is able to say, oh, honey, don't cry. Or it's okay to cry. I know you're sad. Or I'm going to change this diaper. Or, I'm going to feed you soon. This empathy that a mom is able to show is because this affect is being shared. It's a reciprocity between the two of them that's taking place. Yeah. And what I love, my branch of attachment research is in the attachment to God world. Where is that analogy able to be transferred over? Mm -hmm. Where are there similarities between God being this accessible, attuned, perhaps empathic attachment figure who's able to, to join with us in that space of the one who has more power, just like a mother has more power and knowledge and resources than the infant who's wholly dependent on this attachment figure. Yeah. But it is that binding that takes between them. And it's because they're in real time that they develop this experiential knowledge of each other um, that allows them to have the depth and quality of relationship that they have. Mm-hmm.
Yeah. The words that come to mind with that are uh, bi-directional or, or yes. mutuality, that there yes. is not just a direct arrow from mother to child, but there's That's also right. a tr- an arrow coming back and That's there's right. communication between the two. That's right. And you use the word empathy. And I think um, that word has come into vogue more and more <laughs> o- over yes. time. Yes. And uh, I think most people are familiar with the distinction between sympathy and empathy, that sort mm-hmm. of sympathy is perhaps looking from the outside in, whereas empathy is more of a joining with. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the criticisms or the concerns with empathy, I think from people who, again, might be a little bit more cautious or skeptical of the role of emotions is this fear of enmeshment that if I empathize too much, or if I just try to join with the other person that I might get wrapped up within their emotional experience and I might not I might lose some of that objectivity um, and perhaps some of that discernment or wisdom and so Mm -hmm. how do you respond to that you know what what is sort of the prudent way or the the wise way of going about empathy so that we don't just uh, again I think it it might uh, also tie in with the relativism and just sort of get Mm -hmm. sucked into Mm -hmm. uh, somebody else's truth yeah it's a great question the question that you're asking about empathy is hotly debated right now in some <laughs> theological circles, totally, which maybe yeah. you know. Uh, it is something that's picking up a lot of steam. Yeah. Go ahead. <laughs> oh, I, I don't know if I want to uh, open that can of worms, but yeah. I hear you. <laughs> we you can, don't have to fully we can open it. Talk about the issue without yes. referencing the people. <laughs> yes. Oh, no, no. I'm not going to reference any people, just acknowledging that it is it is a hot topic right now. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think um, I think empathy in general, it is true that anything can go to an extreme, right? Any human thing, live in a fallen world can go to an extreme. Mm -hmm. And again, I think if we're living out of concern, particularly a concern that's based in fear, a fear of the extreme, we are likely to move strongly in the opposite direction of whatever the thing is. So like, if I'm afraid of being swallowed up Mm -hmm. by these emotions, I'm going to move all the way away. Yeah, Um, swing that pendulum. Exactly, exactly. And for me, and you'll, you can hear my bias as I talk and I can just embrace it. It is, sure. is what it is. And even as I say, open to other people's feedback as well. I, I look at the text of scripture and I, I, I really want to be able to avoid idolatry. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Idolatry is in this case, what I'm thinking of making God in my own image, mm. making God in the image of what I want God to be. And that's really tricky um, to be able to avoid because we have our yeah. subjective perspective and our own lenses. And when we look at the text, we're always seeing things through our lens, even when we're working hardcore not to. Mm-hmm. We just are. And while I want to avoid idolatry, I I also want to make space, not also, like first want to avoid idolatry. <laughs> and part of how I think we avoid idolatry is asking as clearly as I can in a community with other, other people interpreting the text, what is, what is God revealing about God's own self? Mm-hmm. And even if what God is revealing is scary to me or off-putting to me or throws me off in some way, I'm, I'm choosing to believe as an act of faith that this is good. Mm-hmm. And that's really hard. There are lots of hard texts in scripture. Like, are you sure that's oh, good? Sure. That doesn't yeah. seem good. <laughs> so, but when I think about this in the context of empathy, I think about passages like Hebrews chapter four, verse 19, that says, we do not serve a high priest who's unable to mm. empathize with mm-hmm. our weakness and suffering mm. goes on to say, we have one who was tempted in every way, just yeah. as we are yet without sin. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. This affirmation of the incarnation, acknowledging that Jesus came and took on human form is significant to me, not only because of its soteriological or salvific nature, Mm -hmm. to save our souls from sin and get us to heaven, which evangelicals like to jump to, but I'm all about it. I'm like, yes, great, wonderful. Yeah, the gospel. Exactly. But it's really, I think, a reduction of the gospel Mm -hmm. to something that's not the fullness of what scripture is attested Mm. to. There's lots of conversation debate about this too, right? Is this the full (laughs) gospel or like, are we adding to the gospel? Is this the social gospel? I want to acknowledge those are good questions to ask. We have to wrestle Mm -hmm, with that. mm -hmm. I want to ask the question of the text. What is, what is the text saying about what the gospel is? What is Jesus saying about what Jesus has done? And so if, if the text, if we're executing rightly, right, we can debate, is this the right, you know, um, 
English word for the sure. uh, Greek word here for <laughs> empathy. Mm-hmm. But if if there is something about Jesus taking on flesh and blood to develop this experiential knowledge of what it means to be human by becoming human, mm-hmm. what does it mean for us to be able to find some sense of of a touch point or a reference point for us that if Jesus can enter in something as God, so we'll grant analogy breaks down, I'm not God, but Jesus can enter into something and not be swallowed up by it. Enter into our experiences and not be swallowed up by them. What does it mean for us to be able to say, is it possible for me to enter into someone else's situation? Mm. At least hypothetically. Yeah. Not because I'm God, because I'm not, but because I either have the work of the Holy Spirit, if we use that language, or it's possible at least for me, for me not to be swallowed up, but to join, yeah. to join in. And and to me, if I see that in Christ, going back to what we said in John chapter 11 of Jesus being with Mary and Martha in their grief fully, mm-hmm. I don't have to be afraid of being swallowed up by their grief or even my own. Because mm-hmm. I do trust that there is a God who is beyond and greater than the grief that I experience. But as opposed to circumventing the grief, right? Moving past it or burying it or shoveling it under the rug, mm-hmm. I can actually move through that grief to the other side because I'm not afraid of being swallowed up by it. I've seen that Jesus has shown me it is possible not to be swallowed up by those things. Mm-hmm. And, and that I think gives me an appreciation for empathy, at least mm-hmm. theoretically makes it possible not to be swallowed up by something. Sure. And I get to practice that. Mm-hmm. And what I hear you saying is that Jesus is providing a model, not an exception. That Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah there's like, lots of controversy around that too. oh sure yeah <laughs> i feel like we're just leaving cans of worms in we our work are. we are it's really what's happening with this we're is a curious podcast opening, so. yeah <laughs> opening you up task. moving on to the next one open it up move on to the next one <laughs> it's true it's true and i i, yeah. I laugh about it because it, just, it is what it is i also laugh <laughs> acknowledging that like our limits, limits of this podcast. We can't fully oh, unpack absolutely. all those things though. I yeah. have a lot more thoughts about each of those things. <laughs> I imagine you do too. Oh yeah. But part of what makes me able to open those cans of worms without closing them in this moment is believing that I don't have to be swallowed up by the fear of each mm-hmm. of those cans of worms. Yeah. Scripture says that perfect love casts out fear. Mm-hmm. Perfect mm-hmm. love doesn't suppress fear or act like fear isn't there. Yeah. It is there. And then it casts it out. And I, I, I do believe living in this perfect love of God, where I do believe there's room and for curiosity. There's room to ask questions. Mm-hmm, there's room mm-hmm. to explore these things humbly, honestly, authentically before God and in community. And I get to ask these questions and open all these cans of worms. You know, eventually, <laughs> I probably need to come back, look at some of those again. Mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. I, I, I'm trusting that I, I'm, I'm not in sin or out of line or you know something, something off-putting by asking those questions. You know, to sort of take a meta moment of this podcast, part of my motivation is to treat this podcast almost like a lab, a laboratory Mm -hmm. to sort of, you know, with my listeners, with my audience to wrestle with the the discomfort of not being able to arrive and tie all of those loose ends up with with a nice bow. Uh, Because I think that is such a a, a drive within us. And mm. uh, I don't think it's a, a bad drive, mm-hmm. but I think it's just an acknowledgement of this discomfort that we have as human beings with our own limitations. That's right. Um, and That's right. There, there, there's, there's nothing wrong with that. That's just That's right. a reality of who we are. That's right. That's right. My last lecture of this integration class that I teach is on a theology of finitude. Mm-hmm. this acknowledgement of what it means for us to be finite mm, limited yeah. creature and and not because we're fallen but because we were designed to be limited mm, yeah we were designed that, to be not god right exactly exactly by definition <laughs> and so and so what does it mean to be able to embrace that um i think one thing i'll say about that as well is many people will respond to these topics of divine impassibility or passibility this doctrine surrounding theopassitism, whether or not God has any emotions, mm-hmm. all these kinds of things. And to say by, by kind of foraying into these ideas, we're stepping into something that's beyond our pay grade as humans. <laughs> like we just can't know these things. Yeah. These things are mysterious. Mm-hmm. I remember my research advisor asking this question, like, Kristen, isn't this, like, is this a mystery? Like, and I, I <laughs> this topic, so I have a yeah. lot of thoughts about it. 
Mm-hmm. And one of the things I wrestle with since hearing my mentor ask that question, um, it's, it's first acknowledging that there are, there are limits to what we can know. Yeah. At, at least this side of eternity, right? There are limits and there are mysteries beyond our comprehension. Mm-hmm. When I think about emotions as a Christian, personally, my big question when it comes to text of scripture is, like I said earlier, what has God revealed about God's own self? I don't want to try and make up something that God hasn't revealed. Yeah. But if God has revealed something about God's own nature, and if, like I said before, that revelation is in fact an accurate, if incomplete, mm-hmm. representation of God's nature, I want to know as much as it's in my power to know. Mm-hmm. And I feel the freedom to ask questions about it, to try and know, and I feel the freedom to mess up along the way. Yeah. It's dangerous to mess up with theology, right? Heresies are <laughs> to think about. Mm-hmm. But I also, I do think there's grace to be in the exploration process and if I go back to something else I said a moment ago about attachment theory, mm-hmm. one of the big things attachment theorists talk about is the importance of having a secure base. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The primary attachment figure, who could be the mom or dad or grandparent or someone else, the primary attachment figure, their job is to create a secure base for exploration. Mm-hmm. To be able to say, you know, you're safe with me. So if you're a toddler and you're out at a park and, you know, mommy lets you go run away from her, go look at, you know, you know, the swings, a baby often engages in social referencing. They will walk 10 steps and then pause and look back at mom. Is it still okay? And <laughs> go back and you know, and go explore and like social reference again, kind of explore their world. Mom has provided a secure base mm-hmm. to say, you are well, you are safe. I yeah. am here. So you to can give go that permission. That's right. That's right. That permission, that freedom. Mm-hmm. And the flip side of that same coin is that the secure base, that primary attachment figure on the other side, that primary attachment figure also provides this safe haven. Mm-hmm. And the safe haven is where you return when you are distressed. Mm, and yeah. the secure base is for exploration. Go out and explore. The safe haven is where you return. Like, oh, mommy, I went to the slides and someone, you know, pushed me off or I fell. You know, you come back when you're distressed. And if I think about the analogy, again, of attachment to God, I, I really think that God has given us space not only to come to God in distress, which we do mm-hmm. bear a lot sometimes only coming to God in distress and forget that we could have a relationship with God outside of distressing moments. Yeah. We also get to have this freedom, I think, to explore, to ask Mm -hmm. these questions. And I think God gives room for that. Even if we come back to say, I might've gotten this wrong or help me understand what I think I found. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, One way that I explain it too, to add on to what you're saying about attachment theory is that a safe base allows us to take risks. Yes. That's when we have a place that we can always come back to. Yes. If that risk doesn't work out the way that we wanted it to, that's right. Then we have some place to, to fall back on. Um, right. And, you know, I think that it, it's not this self-indulgence of, you know, I'm just going to live life the way that I want, (laughs) Uh, you know, but I think about the passage of scripture where Jesus says greater things you will do. Um, And just that we, we won't know the limits of what we're capable of and what God created us to be if we don't take some of those risks. That's right. Um, And at the same time, when those risks don't turn out or That's perhaps right. we got off track or, you know, we lost sight of our, our true motivations, then we can return to that attachment to God. That's right. So, That's right. That's yeah. right. So right. I love it. I love it. So I think another really, you know, I, I feel like we're just opening up another can of worms, uh, <laughs> but I love it. And I love having this conversation with you of um, original goodness and original sin, which I think is such a a hard question. (laughs) You know, it's coming. (laughs) I do. (laughs) Um, Because I I think that is just such a difficult thing when it Mm. comes to emotions. And I think it's spattered all throughout scripture where there is, you know, in your anger, do not sin. That's right. Um, That there is uh, an acknowledgement that perhaps there's something originally good about when God said, um, this is good in the That's beginning. Right. That's right. And acknowledging that sin can contextualize emotions or, mm-hmm. or vice versa, That's right. that That's right. they are not always so easily separated. Agreed. Um, and so I, I'm wondering how you have wrestled with this intersection where on the one hand, we want to hold on to the claim that there is something originally good about how God created us and who God created us to be and who 
where we are, our ultimate destiny as Christians and as uh, the Imago Dei. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, recognizing that we are not immune to sin. We are not yeah. immune to uh, the corruption of our our flesh, of, mm-hmm. of our being. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a great question. <laughs> it's a great question. <laughs> so I, I think whether or not we embrace this idea of God being a passable or affected God, whether or not we lean in that direction or kind of lean away from that hardcore, I think it is significant to know that whether God has emotions or not, God has created us intentionally to have emotions. Mm. And it's tricky for us to talk about what perfection is or what goodness looked like before the fall. Cause we actually get like no narratives yeah. about humans <laughs> yeah. before it's, the fall. We get what? Two chapters. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Two chapters. And those chapters are only descriptive, not about interactions between God mm-hmm. and humans, yeah. just about God bringing the world into existence. Right. And we have these first, these two accounts, Genesis one and Genesis two of creation, but doesn't tell us about this interaction between God and humans. So yeah. we have no context Mm-hmm. For what did it mean for any of these things to be good and pure in their perfect form? Mm-hmm. So because we don't know, we do a lot of speculation of like, what must it have meant or kind of those kinds of things. And, and that's tricky territory to be in. But <laughs> I is. think if, if we embrace the notion, as I do, that God created us to have emotions. And in fact, God called everything very good mm-hmm. before sin entered the world. Then emotions in my mind are inherently good inherently good, or at least we can say that inherently neutral. And this is mm-hmm. up for discussion what this means. Whether <laughs> sure. or not we can express those emotions in inherently good ways, um, no. There's lots of problematic uses of every Love can be problematic. Mm-hmm. Anger can be problematic. So everything can, in fact, be completely steeped in sin. Mm-hmm. But I don't think it is inherently sinful to have these emotions, which is why we have, thankfully, nuanced texts that say, be angry, but sin not, mm-hmm. or do not let the sun go down on your anger. Yeah. It doesn't mean don't have anger. Mm-hmm. It means it's what mm-hmm. ought you to do with it. How ought your anger to be manifested? And so for me, in my wrestling, there's a sense of appreciation that emotions are at least theoretically good or at least theoretically neutral. <laughs> uh-huh. And I, yeah. I, I, wasn't, I wasn't steeped in a Christian tradition that made space for that. And I didn't have any people like automatically telling me like these emotions are bad. But I remember when I felt big emotions sometimes, People ask me to calm down or to see if I could, you know, wait until it's a bit more kind of rational or grounded in some way. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and I remember that implicitly, I learned to think that emotions, at least sadness and anger, because those were paired for me sometimes as a <laughs> sure. kid, yeah. as an adolescent, those must be bad. And so what does it mean for us to be able to, to um, acknowledge this paired association if we're thinking about uh, behavioral training for a second and say there's a reinforcement that's taken place because, or kind of classical conditioning has taken place where these two like emotions um, are bad because I've received this type of um, feedback from, from people in my life who said I need to be more calm or more rational. Mm-hmm. How do I disentangle this idea um, to say that actually if, mo- if emotions are good, what does it mean then? to look for an appropriate expression of this anger, to look for a healthy expression of this sadness, to say that at least hypothetically that's possible, where, how do I manifest that? How do I lean into that? How do I live that out? Mm-hmm. And I would say it's under the help and guidance of the Holy Spirit for using Christian language again. Yeah. And we're able to do that. But first it means even being open to that possibility as opposed to thinking those emotions need to be shut down. Yeah. I think it's very easy and, I think a lot of times we view emotions as a liability. Um, yes. That, yeah. oh <laughs> um, that they are a a nuisance or an yes. annoyance of yes. they yes. they get in the way of our daily living. Mm-hmm. Um, they get us off track. They push us in the wrong direction. But you know, I think coming at it from this perspective of even if they're just neutral, um, they provide an opportunity to, Mm. you know, to go either way. Um, And so I want to sort of explore with you this idea of, you know, how can we look at emotions, not just as a liability or a pathology, um, but as a vehicle for sanctification, that if we're truly going to view ourselves Mm. as a whole being that has, emotions. And again, even if we just slap a evaluatively neutral term onto them, Mm -hmm. um, 
you know, if God is sanctifying us or, you know, whatever spirituality, if you are becoming mm-hmm. more of who you are supposed to be, yeah. how can we look at emotions, not just as this uh, baggage or this weight, but how can we look that, at them as a way to be more fully who we're supposed to be? Yeah. Another excellent question. Um, I think part of what helps me to lean in that direction is like metaphors and analogies, which I think totally. I use a lot of. Yeah. <laughs> and one of the ways I think about emotions and often explain them to my clients is emotions serve to me like a parallel function of like a light on a traffic signal. Hmm. I think about here in the US and many places, right? We have this red and yellow and green lights. Yeah. And oftentimes I think when we have certain emotions, especially if they're the negatively valenced emotions, anger, jealousy, sadness, you know, something like that, we assume automatically like this is bad. This is a, a red light. It means stop. Mm-hmm. Like if you feel this thing, stop whatever you're doing. But I, I wonder, especially if we use this idea of neutrality for a moment, I wonder if, if when we experience an emotion like anger, it, it is meant to signal something like what a yellow light signals. Mm-hmm. And I love asking people this question and ask you as well. I'm curious, what, what does yellow traffic signals mean to you when you like, what is, yeah. Yeah. Green means go, red means stop. What does yellow mean? I mean, to me, yellow means uh, slow or caution. Yeah, yeah. That's what I think it means. Either slow down or proceed with caution. Mm-hmm. Yellow light is really, in my mind, the only light that requires discernment. Mm, yeah. I've been at the cusp of an intersection before as it just turns yellow. Mm-hmm. And it's actually, in many cases, too late to slam on my brakes. Another huh. set of issues come up for me, Yeah. Right. Or sometimes there's enough distance that like you actually need to actually put on your brakes. It's like an ethical quandary. It is. It's exactly (laughs) right. It's like at this moment, what do I do? Mm -hmm. And this becomes really important to use discernment. And to me, when emotion enters our experience, which is really all the time. So maybe more accurately, when we're being mindful of the emotion that is present with us and whatever experience or the layers of several emotions that are present, Mm -hmm. what does it mean to, to say caution? not shut down all the emotions, not suppress all the emotions, but caution here, what should you do with them? Mm. If I keep with the example of anger for a moment, especially coming out of a year like 2020, where if I'm thinking about race or thinking about justice in any form, not just in terms of race, for many reasons for anger, Mm -hmm. for me, particularly as a black woman, and for many other people, many of my Asian American friends, many, Mm -hmm. many, many people everywhere, yeah. From various ethnic backgrounds, my white friends as well, like many reasons to be angry, mm-hmm. to look mm-hmm. at things and to acknowledge things are unjust. Mm-hmm. I think about the fact that anger in my mind is meant to signal something is wrong. Yeah. When our gauges are working well, and they don't always work well. So I grant that, you know, sometimes we feel like we've been unjustly. Um, sometimes they need a little tune up. Exactly. Sometimes, <laughs> sometimes the tune up is needed. Yeah. But in general, in my mind, anger is meant to say something's wrong. Mm-hmm. perhaps or most likely something unjust has taken place or at least we're perceiving injustice mm-hmm. so then it, if something unjust has happened it ought to be rectified like if i think about what it means from a christian perspective to to move towards a full robust life life that's made to be full and meaningful that jesus promises mm-hmm. that means we're supposed mm-hmm. to be moving towards shalom and shalom is not this reductionistic sense of peace we're just like there's no conflict anywhere yeah. It's this full fullness of life, right? That allows us to be able to live at peace relationally with other people, with God and interpersonally, intrapersonally with our own selves, this place of actual calm and restoration and wholeness. Because we don't live in an age in which shalom exists, we have to be able to acknowledge when injustices have arisen. Yeah. And yeah. anger is part of what helps us to know that when we have this knee jerk reaction and say, oh, something's wrong. And then the question is, how, what do we do with that anger? How do we mm-hmm. proceed? And lots of debate. I'm down to debate. How do we use the anger? <laughs> yeah. You're my bias. So I'm not down to debate. Mm-hmm. Should you mm-hmm. be angry? Mm-hmm. You can be angry. But the question is, what are we going to do about it? And how ought it to come out? And who should you be angry with? And how do we address is it an individual or an institutional or systemic um, cause of your anger? Or is it all of them? Those kinds of things are a different, more complex discussion. Yeah, I'm feeling like we should have a little counter in the corner of all the cans of worms we've opened up in this conversation. At least 20. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> uh, 
yeah, but so we're we're coming up on the end of our time. But you know, I'm thinking about the person who wants to take this conversation and apply it practically. And I think, mm-hmm. uh, you know, we've talked about a lot of these very heady concepts, and mm-hmm. uh, you know, not inappropriately, but I, I think that sometimes it can feel very theoretical. Yep. And, you know, somebody might be coming to this conversation and saying, hey, Dr. Kristen or Dr. Fort, um, you know, this is so interesting to me, but I don't know how to apply this in my daily life. And, you know, I want to think critically about as a Christian or as a person of faith or as a person who wants to um, have a robust spirituality, um, how can I think about emotions more? Um, because, you know, and I think that uh, for for anybody, this isn't something that we are always thinking about in a critical okay. way. It's just mm-hmm. something that happens automatically. It's just something that is part of our human experience. Yeah. But for those of us who want to be self-reflective and to take an intentional approach to what value does emotions bring to my spirituality, my growth as a person? Um, You know, what would you suggest? Yeah, it's a great question to conclude. I think the very first thing is to do what I am often encouraging my my students to do and myself to do, which is to make space to like do some Mm -hmm, mm self-reflection. In this case about emotions, I think it's significant to reflect on what's my knee-jerk reaction to this last hour or so conversation. Do I feel like more eager to explore? Do I feel more angry? Do I feel more um, eager to shut things down? I want to suppress their voices, turn off the podcast, or suppress my (laughs) feelings as I think about them. To do this self-check and Uh to ask them, where am I with this in the first place? Mm. And I, one of the things we talk about a lot in clinical psychology is the importance of being able to observe something without evaluating it first. And I really am serious when I say like, as this podcast comes to a close to pause and like give some, give ourselves three minutes, like where, how am I? How am I doing yeah. what I just heard? What stirred up things that were exciting for me? What stirred up things that were angering for me or confusing for me? Mm-hmm. Because I think if we're able to start by in, in normal life after a podcast, before a meal, actually being mindful, popular words been thrown around a lot in recent times, right? But I think, I think something that mindfulness gives us and, and mindfulness is a practice that's been used by Christians for a long time, not only these um, meaningful Eastern practices as well. Like, wh- what does it mean to be able to acknowledge that this purposeful pause, which is how I think of mindfulness, this purposeful pause first to simply observe what's going on in my normal life. I love doing this at the, at the beginning of the day, even before my eyes open, I find myself observing how's my body, how am I feeling? Mm-hmm. If this is a stressful week, I'm working up feeling more stressed than I wish I was. Yeah, a and little before- check in. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And before I judge myself for feeling stressed, I get to actually just pause and say, okay, I am feeling stressed, Hmm. observing first with no evaluation. And then I'm going to make a judgment call. Like, what do I need to do um, with that? And so I guess I I put it in this way a little bit more simply, practically, I think it's really important to make space to feel whatever we're feeling. Yeah. Like to actually feel it because mm-hmm. in this podcast, we spend most of our time thinking about feeling <laughs> I'm all about metacognition, love thinking, sure. about thinking, love all the layers, but like actually to feel the feeling. Mm-hmm. I feel this. To allow ourselves. Yeah. To be in it, to actually have the visceral response. And then to ask the question, why am I feeling what I'm feeling? To think about the feeling, mm-hmm. but first to feel it fully and then to think about it, to analyze it, to ask what's going on here. Um, and, and then to figure out what we're going to do about the feeling. So in my mind, if we're being mindful and trying to incorporate emotional experiences more robustly into our daily lives or our awareness of those emotions, we, we feel first and give freedom to feel without evaluation. And then we think or evaluate the feeling. It, what am I going to do with it? What ought I to do with it? What's helpful and healthy about this or not? And then to act, to either proceed in the same direction you're feeling grateful, keep feeling grateful. You're feeling angry. It's okay to feel angry. You need to adjust what you're going to do with the anger, yeah. you know, to act as a result of that, um, that critical analysis. So, so I think it's making more space for those emotions in our own lives. And, mm. and one other thing I'd say, I think is making space to affirm other people doing the same. Mm. Yeah. Back to that relational piece we we're talking about when we experience emotions in someone else, it's easy to be afraid that we'll be bound up with their deep emotions and kind of swept away by them too. Mm-hmm. I, I 
do think it's okay to validate it. It makes sense that you're angry, or I, I hear that you're angry. Even if I don't yeah. think it makes sense. <laughs> Thanks for joining. Let me join you in it. And then we can kind of take our next steps to figure out what we're going to do about it. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you. That's very helpful. And, um, you know, you are a professor and a clinician, but you're also uh, doing some writing. And yeah. so uh, people who want to take a look more at uh, some of your thoughts, and like yeah. you said, we, we yes. brought up a lot of topics and we could talk about this, you know, forever. We could, <laughs> really. we could indeed. <laughs> um, but you are writing a column for the Journal of Psychology and Christianity. Do you mind giving a quick plug of what that is and where sure. people can find it? Sure. So in this column, I and eventually some of the thought partners that welcome into the conversation as well, I and we are taking time to think about how justice and broad concepts that have a lot of biblical roots, how it, how it, how we find ourselves becoming people of justice, practitioners of justice, researchers, scholars marked by justice um, in various forms and spheres of our work. So this particular journal is geared towards Christian psychologists or Christian practitioners of clinical work, whether social workers mm-hmm. or psychiatrists or um, counselors and other ways. Um, yeah, and so one way to find some of my thoughts is this regular quarterly piece that I'll publish with the Journal of Psychology and Christianity that's looking at how justice emerges in our teaching and in our research and in our practice. Um, so in those spheres, and, and then I often write for either pastoral psychology, that journal, or journal of psychology and theology and other spaces where I just love engaging, um, sometimes by myself as a sole author, but also collaboratively with other people, saying, how do we make sense of these ideas in practice? And how do we, before we even get to jump into practice, how do we think carefully about these things well? So then we can, we can do well, we can be faithful, faithful doers of what we've heard. Thank you so much for joining me today. Yeah, thank you for having me. Thank you for tuning in to the Hard Questions, No Answers podcast. Still have questions? Oh, good. I was afraid we answered them all. For more information about HQA podcast, visit drgabelow.com. That's D R G A B E L O W E.com. Additional educational materials recommended by my guests can be found in the podcast tab. And for the updates, news, and behind the scenes, follow HQNA Podcast on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at HQNA POD. HQNA Podcast is independently produced by Gabriel Lowe. Music is Cocktail Fun by Stock Music 331, found on Pond 5. And logo design is by Kenny Lowe. Stay tuned for new episodes released each Wednesday. And thank you for joining me on the journey of no answers.